This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. All major economies recognize that developing a clean electricity system is the foundation needed to decarbonize transportation, buildings, and industrial processes by 2050. Now, there you go. That was the voice of Federal Environment Minister Stephen Gilbeau this morning announcing the federal government's draft regulations, the clean electricity regulations. The plan here to create a net zero electricity grid by 2035. So we'll be talking a lot about that today. Later on this afternoon, I want to let you know that uh, we will hear from Alberta's uh, counterpart, uh, Provincial Environment Minister Rebecca Schultz will join us. And we'll get the Alberta government's reaction to these plans because, of course, there's a lot of concern in Alberta, Saskatchewan, a couple other provinces that got a longer way to go when it comes to a, a so-called clean electricity grid, a lot of reliance on natural gas. So how do we simultaneously decarbonize the grid while increasing its capacity? I mean, part of the motivation for this is the expectation that uh, as we move towards electric vehicles, et cetera, there's going to be a lot more demand for electricity. And the idea is that that should also be green. So there's a lot of challenge involved here and potentially a lot of cost involved. So how is all of this going to work? We'll have more analysis of that through the afternoon. As mentioned, we will hear from Alberta's Environment Minister coming up at 2.30 this afternoon. But joining us off the top for more of an overview on what this all means, how this is all going to work, how it's going to impact Alberta. Very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, Andrew Leach, Energy and Economics Professor at the University of Alberta. Professor Leach, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me again. I guess one thing does stand out. I mean, we're we're talking about a net zero grid by 2035, but the regulations kick in January 1st, 2035. What, what does this tell us about the timeline, first of all? Yeah, that, that's a piece that I haven't really been able to fully reconcile yet. And, and you hit on a little bit, which is if we're aiming to have a net zero grid by 2035, there's a lot of flexibility in here, which says that they, you know, not quite net zero unless there's some other mechanism to bring in offsets or credits or something else. But so far, that's, you know, it seems like there's a little bit of um, a gap between the full net zero by 2035 and what the regulations are, are positioned to deliver at this point. Right. I guess if everyone knows it's coming and, you know, the assumption being that nothing will change between now and then, it is the expectation that a lot would be done prior to 2035. Yeah, I think that's that's what everybody's looking to be ready for. And then these regulations are giving some flexibility for newer facilities to continue operating a little bit longer past 2035. But again, the expectation is, as we've to some degree, as we've seen with, with coal in Alberta, that if these regulations are solid and remain in, in force and are expected to continue to, you're going to see companies making decisions earlier than the one that's required by the regulation. And, of course, technology is changing as well. So you're going to see the adoption of technology probably outpace our expectations as it has for the last couple of decades in the electricity as well. 
And we can get into how doable and workable this all is, but I guess there is, you know, that that piece where energy and environment policy meets the law or the constitution, and you know, where provinces have some some jurisdiction on electricity, pretty clear jurisdiction, and maybe the more fuzzy area where the federal government, you know, as it as it sort of looks for how far they can go in their environmental responsibility. Are we likely to see some some legal issues arise here? I, I can't see how you avoid it. Um, you know, you, you picked up the the right questions here, which is in terms of legislating in relation to electricity, that's very clear in the 92A, so the 1982 amendments to the Constitution. But even before that, in, in Section 9210 of the Constitution, it, it should be very clear that electricity facil- generating facilities are under provincial jurisdiction. But the wild card here is that criminal law, so prohibiting things that cause public harm and other powers reside with the federal government. So, again, I think we end up in the courts with the court saying, is this a bridge too far for that federal, whether it's criminal law power or peace order and good government power, however the federal government decides to argue it or interveners decide to argue it? Um, I think you're almost bound to see this yeah. as you know maybe the fourth or fifth of the challenges to federal jurisdiction over the environment. Well, if you assume, if we assume for now that this will will stand, and as you say, we, we don't know at this point. I mean, you know, the question of how doable this is, and maybe it's more doable for some parts of the country than for others, and, and looking at Alberta, the situation we're in now, and the challenge of getting to this point by 2035, do, do we have any more clarity, I guess, now that we've seen the regulations as to how this is going to impact Alberta? Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing, and I had a little thread on this on on Twitter this morning, uh, the big thing that surprised me and that I think makes it even harder for Alberta is the way the regulatory proposal looks at combined heat and power, what we call cogeneration on the electricity system. And it still would apply these standards to any facility that exports electricity to the grid. So that all of a sudden brings in the oil sands, the chemical industry, the refinery, uh, combined heat and power plants that do provide not only power to their facility, but provide a lot of what we call sort of the quote-unquote base load power in Alberta, the um, that 24-7, 365-ish electricity generation that, that we rely on. And it looks like these regulations are going to also affect those facilities. And if those operators decide, you know what, it's just not worth us exporting that little bit of power to the grid we're going to just use do it for our own use, then that really changes the challenge we face in Alberta and makes it even harder. Well, that's going to be interesting to see how that works out. Now, of course, you know, we're in the midst of uh, a whole debate here in Alberta around, uh, you know, renewable clean energy and what's happening with wind and solar, all the investment that's gone in, all the capacity that's been added, but uh, the way the federal or the Alberta government rather has, has chosen to uh, approach that sector uh, how does that tie into to all of this and, and the need to recognize where, where everything is going? Well, I think, you know, as as with most things on the climate file, you know, the oil sands captures all the heat and light and big news stories and, and the real challenges are on the electricity side. And and what we've seen in Alberta is solar, uh, with large part solar, a little bit of wind, but we've seen both of those sectors, once you put a price on carbon and once you have that open to investment a uh, little bit of a higher electricity price, all of a sudden everyone wants in. And so the grid operator, the regulator, and the government have, I think, 
been caught very flat-footed, essentially because they were looking at this, and, and I think as, as Rob Anderson was seen on video yesterday, thinking of it as a scam. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not going to happen. It's going to be too expensive. And, you know, it was only a couple of years ago that the system operator put out a forecast saying we're going to be at, I think, if I remember correctly, like less than about 1,000 megawatts by 2030 of solar. And now we're looking at 4,000 megawatts by 2026. And that's probably going to be an underestimate if the the regulations don't change. So these new sources have just come on so much faster than anybody, and I'll put myself in in that mix too, anybody would have expected and it's it's led to some disruption in the market sooner than we would have expected. The coal phase out happened faster than anybody expected. That's another source of, of disruption. And, of course, the fact that this is all happening when electricity prices are high because of uh, a lot of market power, lack of competition in, in our market. It's all coming to a head at once. And I, and I think the government's trying to grab onto something and that's something that they're grabbing onto is is wind and solar, and it gives them a link to fight with Ottawa a little bit. Yeah. Well, even with all that capacity that's been been added, what about the the transmission side? And what what's going to need to happen when we look at at infrastructure as we move now toward twenty thirty five and these new rules? Yeah, I, I think the the biggest thing we will want. Uh, I won't use the term need because there are other options, but the biggest thing that we will want is more transmission interconnection between Alberta and BC, probably between Alberta and Saskatchewan, and between Saskatchewan and Manitoba to to connect the great wind and solar resource that you have in Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, some of the hydrogen, et cetera, facilities that are are gonna be in in the Edmonton region, and that storage capability and dispatch capability of of the hydroelectric resources in Manitoba and BC. And if we have that, then we can do a lot more with and get a lot more value out of our wind and solar. We don't have to think about building as much redundant storage or other capacity on the system to, uh, you know, in some ways um, compensate for not just when isn't um, or compensate for when it's not windy or sunny in Alberta. You get to kind of spread that risk over a larger area and bring more resources to bear. So I wish we would have been doing that ten years ago. I mean, right was talked about, I think, back as far as, as Premier Redford and, and Premier Christy Clark tried to, to build um, consensus around a new connection to BC. And we probably need, you know, 10 times the size of interconnection that they were talking about if we want to take full advantage of clean electricity technology. By the way, speaking of technology, I mean, what about battery power? That seems like that's going to be pretty important, you know, as we can make better use of, of this kind of capacity. Where, where's that technology at? Um, it is, but I, but I worry that this is one of these areas where we get too influenced by research and outcomes in the southern U.S., where really their problem is, how do I spread solar power out over an additional few hours at the end of the day? How do I move mm-hmm. power from the middle of the day to the early evening? And so you operate a battery in that world, you're cycling it you know, 300 plus times per year, you're amortizing the cost of that battery over a lot of, of electricity. The challenge in Alberta is more, you know, we need to move electricity from the times when it's, you know, the seasons when it's sunny and windy to those points when it's not. And so there you're cycling a battery much less frequently. You end up with a much more expensive piece of storage infrastructure. So, you know, in the same way as I, I joke a lot online about people's, you know, 
telling me about sunsets and how, you know, hey, did you know that the sun doesn't shine at night kind of thing? I think, you know, people are maybe a little too quick to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, batteries exist. They do, but if you're going to operate them for seasonal storage, they're incredibly expensive. So what about natural gas? It was an interesting uh, quote from, from the environment minister today where he distinguishes between a net zero grid and a fossil fuel free grid. So acknowledging that fossil fuels aren't going to be gone from the grid entirely, but there will be some stringent regulations around them. Alberta is quite reliant on natural gas, of course, when it comes to, to electricity generation. So where does it leave us on that side? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things. One, the flexibility in the regulations that says new generating facilities get 20 years of sort of the old way of being. They, they're not affected by the regulation for 20 years after their commission date. So new facilities like uh, the Large Cascade project that's coming online right now should get a little bit more running room than the 2035 deadline before they have to meet those stringent standards. Remote community facilities, those are more diesel than that gas, but um, remote community facilities uh, end up with an exemption. And the other one that I, that I think is a little bit of a, a sleeper in this is small natural gas generators. So uh, we see a lot of those in Alberta, particularly in the oil field, uh, as methane emissions redu- reduction devices. Essentially, you burn the, the methane and, and generate electricity or the solution gas as opposed to venting it or releasing it, et cetera. Those are exempt as well. So we do have some flexibility to add in or to, to make use of some natural gas power, but the big combined cycle plants, Shepherd, Calgary Energy Center, et cetera, those are looking at very stringent emissions regulations. So they're looking at effectively full carbon capture and storage required by 2035. When it comes to the cost of all of this, and there have been a lot of numbers thrown around and some pretty alarmist projections about what all of this is going to mean in terms of cost to, to, to Albertans or to Alberta anyway. Do we have any further clarity at this point as to what those numbers might look like? Uh, I don't think we, we... The federal government has some new numbers out, out today. I haven't been uh, fully engaged, fully into the, the depths of their modeling to figure it out. But the, the difference in cost estimates that you see usually turns on two things. Number one, are you just giving me a number of the total cost of operating the electricity system, or are you giving me the difference between the cost of an electricity system under this regulation versus not? Right. And then, you know, what do you assume is happening if this regulation isn't in place? So if there's still the carbon price, if there's still um, incentives for electrification, if there's still, you know, EV uh, demand explosion, et cetera, then you say, okay, yes, people are using more electricity, but on an energy basis, they're making much more efficient use of the energy that they use. And so the hope or the, the projections are that these end up leading to sort of more affordable energy because you're wasting less. You're not generating a whole bunch of heat with your internal combustion engine or your um, your furnace in your house that you're making use of more efficient technologies. You're getting more comfort for less total energy, more transportation for less total energy, but then you're getting more of that from electricity. So it's it's... You know, there's a lot of moving parts here. So, you know, people are going to see estimates that are all over the map. And and I remember this happening with with the coal phase out and and such things where, you know, there were numbers, $30 billion that the compensation would have to be to get plants to shut down by 2030. And I think the number ended up being one and a half. Uh, So there's a, you know, 
a wide range of estimates that we'll see from uh, from different interested parties over the next few days. Yeah, we got a long way to go here. It's kind of just maybe the end of the beginning in a way, but I'll uh, leave it there for now. Uh, Andrew Leach, thank you so much for the insight. Appreciate you joining us here today. Thanks for having me. Here you go, Professor Andrew Leach, energy economist at the University of Alberta. Kind of an overview of these clean energy regulations, which we're going to talk a lot more about today. Coming up later on this afternoon, we'll hear from Alberta's Environment Minister. What's Alberta's reaction to all of this? And as to that legal and constitutional question, are we going to take the feds to court here? Probably this does end up before the courts at some point. Because, again, the provinces have some pretty clear jurisdiction when it comes to electricity. So uh, I would imagine that's in the cards. But in terms of the impact of all of this, is this doable? What's the cost? We'll get into all of that. Rebecca Schultz joins us coming up at 2.30 today. What we're talking about is not a fossil fuel-free grid by 2035. It's a net zero grid by, by 2035. We understand that there will be some fossil fuels uh, remaining on, on the grid in 2035, but we're, we're working to minimize those, and, and the fossil fuels that will be used post-2035 will have to comply with, uh, with rigorous environmental uh, and, and emission standards. Okay, so the federal environment minister uh, arguing that within these clean energy regulations, there is some flexibility when it comes to natural gas. And this is a big issue for Alberta. Uh, We are heavily reliant on natural gas when it comes to our electricity grid. And and the hope then that even as we incorporate more renewables, that we still have that reliable backup. Uh, So that those comments from the minister, I don't think enough to to reassure uh, folks here in Alberta, there was a statement earlier today from the Canadian uh, Association of Petroleum Producers. Uh, they've got some serious concerns, and uh, as does the Alberta government. So I want to talk about those concerns, but also where all of this goes from here, because uh, the Premier's statements, backed up by the Environment Minister today, is that these regulations are not going to be implemented here. So joining us uh, to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Alberta's Minister of Environment and Protected Areas, Rebecca Schultz. Joining us, uh, Minister, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So maybe I'll, I'll get you to elaborate on, on that point. First of all, the, the statement the Premier made, and I believe you, you made it in your press conference just within the last hour, that these regulations are not going to be implemented in Alberta, period, I believe is a direct quote. What, what does that mean exactly? Well, I mean, they can't be implemented in our province and for a variety of reasons. First of all, they're completely irresponsible. They'll drive up the cost of electricity for everyday Albertans and we risk reliability in our electricity grid. When, you know, you think about how this would impact just an everyday Albertan or Canadian, they expect uh, to see their costs remain low. They don't want to see costs uh, increases on their power bills by three, four, five times to pay for this $1.7 trillion change. Um, and they also, uh, of course, expect that in the middle of the night, they're able to, to flip on their light switch in the middle of winter, that they're able to heat their homes. I mean, you know, the thing is, is that the timeline is just so unrealistic. So 2035, like when we look at where we're at here in Alberta, Uh, these regulations completely ignore the reality that is faced in provinces like Alberta, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. Um, You know, we're not Quebec and Ontario. Uh, We have a different grid. And, you know, we can talk about uh, investments in CCUS and nuclear. Uh, First of all, the federal government has been promising money for CCUS for two years now, and we haven't seen that come to light. The other thing is within 12 years, they expect us to overhaul this whole system it takes time to build 
that technology and that infrastructure. I mean, the other thing that is going to hold up this technology is the federal government's own Impact Assessment Act, which essentially uh, throws these major infrastructure pro- uh, projects into uh, a very long, drawn-out process. So to say we can do all of this within uh, the next 12 years, I mean, it's, it's just completely ridiculous. Right. Now, you're making a case then that these shouldn't be implemented here, but to say they won't be... That that seems more definitive. So, again, are we talking about a Sovereignty Act approach here? What, what does it mean to say that these won't be implemented here? You know, I'm going to say this, that, you know, we're starting these conversations with the federal government. Uh, the premier is leading the charge on those discussions. We need to have these discussions about, uh, first of all, I think, where we're aligned which is um, on our goals and aspirations of 2050. Uh, Why would we let these arbitrary deadlines get in the way of that? Um, We hope that the federal government wants to step up and have those discussions, but if not, if they continue to come out um, with irresponsible and completely unachievable targets in the interim, we will use every tool at our disposal uh, to represent the best interests of Albertans. There that some... could be the Sovereignty Act, but, you know, and I, I should just say, okay. I mean, Premier has been very clear. That is one of the tools in our toolbox. But, you know, in a perfect world, we'd have a federal government that respected provincial jurisdiction. Well, there is certainly clear provincial jurisdiction of the Constitution when it comes to electricity. And, and I guess that uh, is running up against where the federal government sees its uh, jurisdiction on the environment. Is this going to be challenged in court? You know, it's too early for me to say that right now. But, I mean, again, we have... We have a lot of people who are going to be digging into this. We, of course, I I think that this is disappointing that we at the provincial level, we only got uh, this this morning. Already we can see major concerns. Uh, One of the one of the main concerns is you you can't say that you support uh, additional natural gas production when you're making changes uh, from the 40 year end of prescribed life to 20 years. Who's going to invest in that type of infrastructure with that short of a time span? Um, this is a very real concern for investment certainty, for jobs, for affordability, and for Albertans and Canadians. All right, so under these regulations, so you mentioned the 20 years. So a natural gas power plant would be exempt from the cap for 20 years from the date they would be commissioned. After that, then, there would be the expectation of the requirement uh, that they use carbon capture technology. Have I got that correct? Well, and look, I mean, I'll leave the individual concerns uh, to our industry. I I know I've been hearing all morning from both uh, power producers, our natural gas industry. I mean, there is major concerns, of course. Uh, This is draft, and we still have an opportunity, according to the federal government, uh, to put our feedback into play in the next 75 days. I think my concern, and certainly the Premier's, is we've already provided feedback It hasn't been considered. We've been asking for uh, investments in CCUS, um, and we haven't seen that. I mean, I think it was two years ago. It's still on their website saying that these investments will be coming out in 2022. We're past that. Uh, So we need to see the federal government step up in a real way. Uh, You know, they make these commitments, and uh, they're just, you know, in many ways, they're, they're just completely unrealistic and devoid of reality. 
Right. So absent these regulations, I mean, what what is Alberta's grid going to need moving forward? We need to talk about natural gas capacity, uh, and we haven't seen any natural gas capacity added uh, in in recent years. So what what do we need, and what what's hold, you know what would be held back then under these regulations? Are we talking about adding new capacity? You know, when when we launched our emissions reduction and energy development plan, really our goal was to make sure that we have uh, a solid amount of natural gas base load, uh, but also incentivizing CCUS uh, abated natural gas generation, small modular reactors, nuclear uh, hydrogen generation, and of course, making sure that we have a sustainable amount of wind, solar, and other renewables. So I think part of my frustration as well is that Many say, many make this an either or, including the federal government, right? This is an either or conversation. For us, it's not. It's an and conversation. And our goals essentially are an aspiration to get to carbon neutrality by 2050. Um, you know, in, in that, that's in a way that works for the province and the people of Alberta. And we would ask the federal government, like, look, you have goals for 2050. We have goals for 2050. Can we agree um, on where we're going? and then not impose um, these kind of arbitrary deadlines and targets in the interim. What about transmission infrastructure? Again, I mean, we have, we have a lot of concerns about the infrastructure that, are gonna be, that is going to be needed uh, to get us to uh, what the federal government is proposing. Um, we're asking them to sit at the table to have these talks so that we can uh, discuss where are we going, what's needed. Uh, Alberta's electricity grid is, is definitely unique when it comes to um, other provinces and territories. And so um, we would just hope that the federal government would recognize that and allow us to stick to our own 2050 plan. You mentioned the importance of investor certainty, and, and I think there's a concern that when it comes to investment in, in renewables, we've injected a whole lot of uncertainty in Alberta with this six-month moratorium. You know, the investment, the capacity that's been built here, I think has certainly helped get Alberta on this path uh, towards, you know, net zero, whether it's 2035 or, or 2050. And now maybe we're throwing some of that into question at a rather inopportune time. How, how do you respond to those concerns? You know, I would say this. I mean, last year, when we look at renewable investment in Canada, 75% of that investment was in Alberta. That's because Alberta is a place that's known for being open for business. Um, You know, we're happy to see that investment happen in Alberta. But now our regulators have raised concerns about reliability and sustainability of our grid. We also had concerns raised about liability and reclamation. What happens to this infrastructure when it is at end of life? And I think we also have to look at the impacts, of course, on our agricultural lands and our environment. Um, we need some parameters for this industry. We need to answer some of those questions. And I think for long-term investor certainty, the right time to do that work is now. Can we do this work without a moratorium? I mean, we've got similar concerns when it comes to oil and gas. Uh, certainly, it's inconceivable that any Alberta government would, would support a moratorium on the oil and gas uh, development to, to address these issues. So is, is there a double standard here? 
You know, I would say it's hard to compare those two industries. We've had a strong energy industry in this province for decades. This is a relatively new industry when we're looking at renewables. Um, Minister Savage, uh, my predecessor in environment, but uh, at that time she was the energy minister, was addressing liability uh, management. And and we know that this is an issue. Premier also has identified that addressing uh, the tailing pond issue of reclamation in the oil sands is something that she wants to see addressed right away. Um, but that's very different than seeing all of this additional investment coming online in renewable in renewables. We need to take the time to get this right. It's a six, seven month pause. We're going to be working very quickly alongside the regulators to make sure we have it right so that we are in fact having a grid that is sustainable and reliable. So moving forward uh, on the clean electricity regulations and, you know, as you alluded to, uh, you know, considering next steps here. But in the meantime, as the premier statement points out, we're about to commence this working group with the federal government. So is is that the next step here to at least get on with that work and see how that all unfolds or, or where, where does all of this go from here? Absolutely. Um, you know, we're setting up those those working groups right now, we need to have these discussions because we continue to see the federal government just impose very problematic legislation and legislation that quite frankly has the opposite effect uh, to what we're trying to get to when it comes to emissions reduction and protecting our environment. Um, I mean, for one, that's the case with uh, this electricity regulation that was released today. I mean, it, it completely disregards the affordability and uh, reliability issues for Albertans and Canadians. We have a proposed oil and gas cap that actually has the opposite effect on global emissions if we can't get our sustainably produced energy to market. And things like the plastics ban, you know, I can't even um, begin to tell you how frustrating. We have Calgary Co-op and an amazing entrepreneur that said, look, I, I can come up with this a replacement to plastic bags, a completely compostable bag. It's been used by Calgary Co-op. It's actually increased composting by Calgarians and it's banned yeah. by the federal government. Like we just continue to see this completely arbitrary, irresponsible legislation coming out of the federal government. And we're asking them to put common sense ahead of ideology. Well, we'll see what all goes from here. Minister Schultz, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thanks so much. All the best. Uh, that is Alberta's Minister of Environment, Rebecca Schultz. So some reaction to the clean electricity regulations announced today by the federal government, what Alberta's concerns are about, you know, the timeline, the expectation, and saying, look, there's a way we can do this responsibly. The federal government's willing to be a partner on that. And we'll see, right? And as mentioned, there is this working group, this federal provincial working group uh, that's uh, about to begin some of its work. And I guess we'll see if there's any common ground here. Now, of course, this all ties into, you know, sort of the broader, more ambitious uh, environmental policy agenda of the federal government and how well they're able to execute that. You know, when it comes to plastics, for example, the federal government is now moving on to stage two uh, of the focus on plastics, which is now going to involve plastic packaging. So a lot of questions about how this is all going to work, given the reliance, especially in the food sector. Uh, on plastic packaging and what can possibly replace that. I don't know that things went all that well or have gone all that well when it comes to stage one of the uh, plastics plan, the ban on single-use plastics. One of the issues that's come up, and it's been a Calgary-specific issue, is the fact that this ban encompasses something that's not actually plastic. Uh, Calgary Co-op, in in partnership with uh, another Calgary company, did something really innovative. 
They came up with a, a grocery bag, a shopping bag that feels like plastic, but isn't. And it's actually compostable. And they went out of their way to make sure that the bag, A, did not contain any plastic, and B, would be compostable in the city of Calgary's system. And it is. So these bags can go in the green bin. You can use them as bin liners for your compostables. And consumers seem to really like them. But under the federal regulations, these bags are being treated as plastic and will suffer the same fate as, as plastic bags. So it makes no sense. Like, there's no logic here. Uh, and so there's been a pushback, uh, I think, from a lot of uh, shoppers, even people who don't even necessarily shop at Calgary Co-op and speaking out about this. There is a petition as well uh, that's been launched, and uh, our next guest uh, has offered to sponsor that uh, in Ottawa to make sure it is presented in the House of Commons, to make sure the message is heard by the government loud and clear, that this approach just doesn't make any sense. Uh, joining us on the line here this afternoon is uh, Michelle Remble-Garner, a conservative MP for Calgary Nose Hill, Michelle, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, a lot going on, obviously. Um, <laughs> my goodness. But uh, let's talk about what, what caught your attention with regard to the, the single-use plastics ban and what's happening here with Calgary Co-op. You know, there's so many Albertans who care about protecting our environment. And that extends to multiple different industry sectors. And here we have an example of an Alberta-based company that has gone out of its way to adopt a new product that's cost-effective, that isn't a plastic bag that consumers love, that's really innovative, that checks all the boxes. Mm -hmm. And you've got the federal government going, "Mm, no, sorry, without any reason for it and to me this is really an ideological driven answer to something that could be held up as best practice to the rest of the country and um, so I'm really proud of our city across political stripe for standing up and saying this ban has got to be reversed so um, it, it, it is as you said in the intro it's a little crazy and uh, we are going to be pushing for a parliamentary petition to get the government to reverse this ban because I know so many people of so many different political stripes who love these, what amount to a compost bin liner, mm-hmm. who can't understand why the federal government won't give them an answer as to why they are banning a bag that does not contain plastic. Yeah, it's really strange. Have you gotten any kind of an explanation? Like, What's your understanding of this? There isn't an understanding. You know, I've yeah. talked to um, people with the company who are, uh, you know, these are not partisans. Um, they have been trying to get an answer out of the federal government. They've met with multiple officials from different departments. They're being given the runaround. Um, I've talked to people from who vote every different way, and they're they're equally as puzzled and as bemused. And at this point... Because the federal government is not giving those logical answers, I can only surmise this is a ideological punishment against an Alberta-based company. Um, there's there's actually no logic behind this. And what I worry about, all politics aside, is that this will disincent companies from coming up with these types of innovative, consumer-positive solutions that protect our environment. Yeah. Because the government is saying, hey, there's no, this is the Wild West. We're just going to make up the rules and not give you any guidelines. And we've got to oppose that, too. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's really anti-business in, in that sense, isn't it? it? Is. Because this is the kind of innovation that we, we want. You know, when, when there's an indication that, look, we want things to go in a certain direction, we want to rely less on plastic, we want to reduce plastic pollution, it's kind of a signal to the market there's a demand for these kind of products. And then along comes the government with an arbitrary hammer and, and squelches that. that. That's not good. Like, if we can't use a compostable bag... What can we use? Like, that, that's, the, that's the question that's out for me right now. And the other thing is, is that if they put these bags in a box and sold them six inches away from the checkout, it would be okay. So this is an example of bureaucracy run amok and not making any sense. And this is where you need a political minister to say, hey, people in my department, this is crazy let's reverse the ban um so i certainly hope that calgarians again that we put partisanship aside and this is this is a bag this 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 compostable liner is in everybody's house across the city i like there's no reason for the federal government to be banning this it is pure insanity this is actually i i i you and i have talked about a lot of things this one, I just, I can't. I, yeah. I'm done on this one. It's crazy. It's frustrating. I mean, but what does it also tell us about, I mean, you talk about sort of the ideological approach here because, you know, stage one was the single-use plastics. Now the government's moving on to stage two, which is going to involve plastic packaging. And who knows how that's going to go. What does it tell us about their approach and whether we should have any confidence in that? It says that they can't take yes for an answer. I mean... Here you've got this Alberta-based company, this wonderful local business. Like, okay, how can we can how can we do something that's consumer positive and good for the environment? And then they deliver this wonderful solution that, frankly, you know, if if I was in government, I'd be like holding this up as the gold standard for other industries to use or other companies to be using across the country. And then you, you but you've got our current federal government being, oh no, no. Uh, we can't use this non-plastic bag that's fully compostable to uh, comply with the plastic ban. Like, what does it say? It says, it says, don't bother trying. Uh, we're a banana republic that can't set the rules properly. And we have an ideological minister that isn't in control of his file and doesn't actually know what he's trying to do with regulations and hasn't left his role at Greenpeace, where he's just being an activist and not actually trying to govern. And... Uh, like it, it, it is as strong as that. Like it, this is, it is, this is nonsensical. This is, this bag does not contain plastic. It is fully compostable. Consumers love it. It incents people to actually compost and reduce waste. It's cost effective. It's been developed in Canada and being used by a Canadian company. What more do you want? Like if this was developed in Quebec, maybe. Is that the issue? Yeah. Do we need to have it like by some sort of liberal firm that's donating to the liberal party to get this through? Like, there's no logic here. It, it like it is bananas, and they need to. Uh, I, I just, I'm very frustrated. I, yeah. I, well, I a lot can't. of people are absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, co-op has their petition up at change.org, and uh, hopefully, then we'll see that uh, soon presented in the House of Commons. Uh, Michelle, here's hoping some uh, common sense can prevail, but we appreciate your time here this afternoon. Thanks so much for this. Thanks for being my therapist and letting me rest. <laughs> yes, always. Um, all the best. Take you. care.
There you go. That's uh, Michelle Rempel-Garner, conservative MP, Calgary News Hill, uh, planning to do sponsor this petition in uh, the House of Commons. So change.org. I've got a link here. Uh, if you want the direct link, uh, you can send us a text, uh, 403-974-8255, and I can just shoot you that uh, if you want to add your name to it. So there are over ele- almost, well, almost 12,000 signatures now. Uh, so the goal here on this one is 15,000, and yeah, hopefully that helps. So if you want to add your name to that, we can uh, send you the link if you uh, text us. But at the top of this hour, I want to talk about what's happening with the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. Uh, Work continues on the pipeline. In fact, it's getting closer to completion. Uh, So that's encouraging. It's been a a long and troubled road for this uh, pipeline project, but it is getting closer to the finish line. And once it's complete... Uh, the focus will turn to finding an owner. Now, inevitably, this is going to be, I think, at at a loss to the federal government. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, the price the government bought the project at now pales in comparison to what the costs actually are of getting this completed. So that's uh, uh, unfortunate. And, you know, that's the situation we're in now. Uh, But yes, I think, you know, this will be an important step, finding some private ownership for this project. And a real interesting opportunity here, as the government has already made it clear their intention to explore the possibility of involving indigenous groups in the project, to have a majority stake even potentially in this project owned by First Nations. So how do we get there? Well, I want to talk more about the the work that's happening there, how this deal might be structured, why it's important. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Stephen Mason, Managing Director with Project Reconciliation, Calgary-based group that is working to facilitate this purchase. Uh, Mr. Mason, great to have you with us here. Thanks so much for joining us. Good afternoon, Rob. Uh, So first of all, where are things at in terms of the uh, construction of the pipeline? How close to completion are we, as you, you understand it? Well, as per what we're hearing in the public, um, and the, uh, the 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 proverbial last spike is is pretty much uh, very close, uh, Rob. Um, it's our understanding that Trans Mountain has now reached out to the uh, shippers to get ready to line fill starting in the fall. This could be as early as September. But, uh, you know, that uh, the light is definitely uh, is getting brighter at the end of the tunnel of, been the, of this long journey from when it was first conceived by uh, Trans Mountain and, and Ian Anderson uh, with Kinder Morgan uh, mm-hmm. to finally get to where we're pretty close, I believe, to the last spike. Yeah, long overdue. It's good to see that, you know, we're finally at the end of that stage of it. So... What would be the timing then of, of a potential sale? Would that have to be lined up close to completion? Would that work begin after completion? Where are we at there? Well, Rob, I mean, that's a good question. That lays in the hands of the federal government. Project Reconciliation came together with a vision to ensure, at the, and at the early days, we were talking material ownership by Indigenous peoples. And in July of 2019, um, I tabled the first offer to purchase on behalf of 100% Indigenous ownerships, uh, ownership, 51% on, uh, at the time, the finance minister, Bill Morneau's desk. Mm-hmm. And we had a meeting, I believe if I searched my memory, July 19th of, uh, or July 21st of 2019, and sat down and talked about it. 
really the message that we got back then was we're just going to build it first and then look at selling it. Our view and my view with Minister Morneau at the time that there's been too many undeveloped promises of two Indigenous peoples and you know this very much could be viewed as another one of those un, uh, undelivered promises when the Prime Minister in June of 2019 indicated the sky's the limit whether it's 25, 50 or even 100 percent mm-hmm. and that in fact by having Indigenous ownership early could inf- could be a bit of a, a risk mitigator for opposition to having the pipeline being built with protests we've seen on other projects but the government made their decision that they were going to build it first and here we are now where the conversation is is really starting to pick up with the government uh at least as it relates to what they see as the phase one uh of the divestiture being to an a group of uh, 120 indigenous communities Right. So the current finance minister uh, sent a letter last week outlining these potential opportunities. What, what can you tell us about that letter? Well, basically, it was a very high level. Well, we were uh, sent a copy of it as a proponent, as we've been in conversation with the federal government for going on six years, to where the letter suggested that the government was looking at creating a special purpose company or vehicle, as it's often called, SPV, and that there would be a certain percentage that would be carved out of the ownership, the equity ownership of Trans Mountain Corporation for 120 nations, and that the details would follow, basically, is what the letter said. It is my understanding now there's a second letter that's come out uh, that has uh, announced a meeting to be taken place I believe it's sometime around the third week in September out in Vancouver for those 120 nations to come to the meeting and talk about how the mechanics would work for that first phase uh, transaction. And that the perception or the, the indications are that the government would then move to a second phase, which would be a formal process for uh, industry as well as Indigenous peoples, should they choose to increase their uh, potential ownership to participate in the second raise, uh, phase, which uh, will would at this stage is viewed to be a, an open tender process okay. uh, for the highest bidder to win that bid for the second phase. What about access to capital then? How, how could that be addressed? Well, certainly in our long journey, Rob, where the first thing as it came as a vision to me almost six years ago, how, you know, with the basis of certainly at the time and still to that to this day that the 20 year shipping commitments by some of Canada's strongest balance sheet energy companies was the basis to project base and non and, and non recourse fund the uh, the purchase of the pipeline. And. Project reconciliation went to considerable um, efforts on becoming finance ready, working with the banks, uh, and working, you know, being in and out of uh, New York and and Toronto and talking to bond desks about the receptiveness to buy a series of bonds, bond issuance. On a, on a yield that would reflect the security behind the, the, the long-term contracts. 
we got to a point where we even had a rating agency price the bonds for us mm-hmm. to then get to a basis so that we could move to a conversation with the indigenous communities, the leaders, the chiefs, on what it would mean to own it in terms of free cash flow that would come off the pipeline after a servicing of the debt and a sinking fund to retire the debt. And that uh, that number in our quite detailed work and working with the banks worked out to be about $430 million a year, a year that would be available for distribution for the ownership of a 100% ownership of the pipeline. And, and Rob, it was through that that we really had a vision. And what we were hearing, what I was hearing from the Indigenous leaders is that Indigenous peoples want to be partners with Corporate Canada, but it was access to capital, which was always the constraint. So the vision was that through the ownership of Trans Mountain and the access to what at the time was that vision of $430 million a year for distribution to that ownership would be the genesis of uh, creating an Indigenous sovereign wealth fund, a generational wealth to allow that basis for Indigenous peoples to have the capital access to get into partnerships, equity partnerships with, with Corporate Canada in major infrastructure projects like, for instance, high-voltage transmission infrastructure, public-private partnerships with municipalities. And as the world has turned over the last three years and what has become a real focal point to uh, our energy sector is in the energy transition um, space. And the energy transition, which we've been working very hard while we've been in this hurry-up-and-wait for the federal government to figure out how, when, where, and to who they're going to sell this pipeline to, in creating reconciliation energy transition as that basis, that that business basis for Indigenous ownership, material Indigenous ownership in energy transition infrastructure projects. So in terms of who the owners would be, so I mean, Project Reconciliation wouldn't be the actual owner. You're facilitating this. Would it be these communities then that would, would be the owners? Definitely. Our okay. vision right from the very beginning, it would be owned 100% by the Indigenous peoples, the uh, communities that chose to be part of it. Facilitator, I don't really like that word facilitator, Rob. I mean, yeah. it is basic a basis to bring together that ownership. Yeah. You know, the work that we did in understanding how to finance it. We also came up with, when you talk 120, and it was initially 129 that the uh, federal government got into a long, uh, drawn-out consultation process with over two years, that we've, we went through an, a, a significant exercise to under, get to an, an ownership model that reflected those communities closer to the impact of that right-of-way would own more than those further away. So we did an extensive amount of effort mapping, not just the right-of-way, that was the easy part, but the the Indigenous communities, treaty lands, and in the case of BC, it's non-treaty, but also traditional lands to come up with a very fair and equitable ownership that reflected the more impacted you are, the more you should own. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, we, we put together a very comprehensive uh, governance structure that allowed the voice and the vote at the table without having 129 board members, 
but a very uh, well-developed uh, governance structure that would effectively have a unit holder assembly that would then elect a council, which would then give that voice representation on the board. So for over four years, we have been finance ready. We have been a, a fair and equitable ownership model that made sense to those impacted communities to have their rightful ownership and a governance structure that will allow truly that voice at the table for the operations, the environmental oversight, et cetera. So you're optimistic that, that you know, this will happen? Are things looking, or, you know, the prospects of this looking better? Well, I'm very optimistic that yeah. the government's finally starting to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, it's been a long journey of hurry up and wait here, Rob. You know, as I said, I, this vision came to us uh, almost six years ago. Yeah. And our, you know, we've been we've been ready to have that serious conversations for at least three and a half of those six years. But in the meantime, you know, with what this vision has become with reconciliation energy transition, which has brought together where we're on behalf of material indigenous ownership, in this case, Treaty 7, uh, we were awarded the Calgary Region Carbon Sequestration Hub. And we went up against some very competitive big companies and uh, the Alberta Energy through the, for, the, uh, the oversight of former minister, uh, energy minister, Sonia Savage, awarded RETI, which brings this uh, material indigenous ownership um, of Treaty 7 Nations to own a carbon sequestration hub and, uh, and, and energy transition projects uh, af- affiliated with that hub. All right, more details uh, on all of this, projectreconciliation.ca. We'll see where it all goes from here the rest of the year. But, uh, Stephen, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate the overview. Yeah, my pleasure, Rob. Uh, Have a good afternoon. You as well. Thanks again. That's uh, Stephen Mason, Managing Director of Project Reconciliation, uh, working on the purchase of this pipeline. But, again, the organization is not seeking to buy the pipeline project, but to ensure that these uh, affected communities will have the opportunity to have an ownership stake. So I think that can be a win-win, and it appears as though that's the, the direction the federal government is looking anyway. We'll, we'll see how that all plays out. And uh, again, the expectation that uh, you know we're almost at the finish line, at least in terms of the completion of this project sometime later this year. And I know, you know early on there was a lot of skepticism as to whether that would ever happen or whether the government would ever allow that to happen or whether they were competent enough to get it to this point. And understandably so. I think a lot of people said at the time, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. So we are almost complete. That's good. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, the, the costs have, have really escalated on this. And, and, look, keep in mind, I mean, if Kinder Morgan had kept this pipeline, surely their costs would have escalated. Uh, so I think part of that is unavoidable. But, yeah, I mean, I think part of that inevitably is once you put a government in charge of something like this, that compounds the problem. And so, yeah, there, there will be a, a loss on this for sure. So that's, that's the downside. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.